Hi there, and welcome back to the Director's Notes podcast. I'm Marbel, and this week we head back to the London Film Festival for an interview I recorded with director Christina Cho, whose feature debut, the psychodrama Nancy, picked up the Waldorf Salt Screenwriting Award at Sundance earlier this year. In our interview, I spoke to Christina about the difficulties of securing financing for films led by complex female protagonists, gathering a more than enviable cast of well-respected actors her first time out, including Andrea Riseborough and Steve Buscemi, and how her documentary films inform her fiction work. Hi Christina, welcome to Director's Notes. Hi. We always start our interviews with the question of what is it that brought you to filmmaking and directing? I think that I always wanted to tell stories and I didn't know what shape they would take. I grew up in New Jersey, was the only Asian person in my town and I think watching movies was like an escape for me to sort of travel to these different worlds and people's perspectives and you know I think I always felt like as an outsider growing up in this town that cinema was this way to leave this small, you know, town and way of thinking that felt like I could travel through cinema, you know? So I think it's, yeah, it's always been like trying to like connect with other people through this medium. And I started off doing documentary and then I started writing a script and then I I eventually came to directing (laughs) narrative fiction. um, But sort of went through all these different other sort of angles of filmmaking before getting here. <laughs> How do you sense. feel that those have informed the way that you approach directing now in narratives? So for instance, your documentary work, and I know that you recently did um, a documentary as well, so those two are kind of carrying on side by side. So how do you think one informs the other? I think it's like been really good training. Like I think yeah, they're different mediums, you know, they're totally different, but in the end it's still storytelling, you know. I have a background editing because of, I would edit my own documentary stuff, and so in a way, like, I think that made me a better writer because I'm editing, you know, when you have a documentary footage, it's just hours of footage that you're supposed to make into a story, and you're crafting the sort of narrative and the characters through the editing, and it was like, writing in a way but I didn't realize it till later you know and I didn't think I would ever go back to it and then as I was sort of waiting for Nancy to get financed like I got a opportunity to go to North Korea and basically make a documentary and I ended up filming there you know secretly and you know in in sort of the worst circumstances where I couldn't control anything as far as like aesthetically or getting good sound you know it was very like to the bone raw of like just trying to capture something you know you know I don't know directly how it influenced Nancy but I think if I can make a story out of that kind of footage (laughs) where it's just like you're really manipulating not manipulating but yes you are you know footage that's not ideal and trying to tell a story that moves people Ultimately, that's what you're trying to do in a fiction film. It's the same thing. You have different tools, but you're really just trying to move people or connect with someone in the audience with your story. Nancy was um, born out of your desire to tell a story about a female anti-hero and also your interest in um, imposter um, Mm -hmm. stories. 
um, including your own personal experience with that with your old teacher. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, I know it's out in the States, but hasn't yeah. been released over here yet. Could you tell us a little bit more about Nancy and that story? Um, yeah, so basically I, you know, started off sort of wanting to make a character that's a morally ambiguous anti-heroine, you know, messy, complicated female character and sort of could not find that many examples of that in TV or in cinema and really just so many examples of it that were played, you know, by male characters and even now it's like, can you come up with five? Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. And just once I realized that, I was like, that's fucked up. Like, how boring is that? Like, why do we have to play, like, you know, just the wife or or sister or whatever best friend or like muse or whatever like it just felt like very limiting and then yes I was like obsessed with these different imposter stories and then while I was writing the script you know I basically found out my favorite writing professor was a fraud an imposter and you know it was like dead poet society that Robin Williams character that you know all the students worshipped him and everyone was so inspired by everything that he said and like but it was like following a cult leader but he basically told us that he was a ghostwriter for a huge Hollywood franchise and eventually came out that he had been lying to all of the students and the faculty and his own family and everyone was really upset and I was sort of more fascinated by it. Well, I know that you kind of said, well, there might have been falseness there, but if his results, you know, his inspiration, yeah. they're still valid. Right, it sort of, at the end, was like, made me think about it, it as like, well, does it really matter? Like, even now, like, I look back on it, it's like, that was a really formative, genuinely authentic connection or experience that I had with this teacher, you know, and like was one of the best teachers I've had. Does it matter that it was all a lie, you know? And I think that theme really became a theme of Nancy eventually, you know? I don't know how much I've said this in interviews already, but like, you know, I think my trip to North Korea and I was also navigating the entire time between the government's propaganda and trying to figure out what's true and what's false and constantly just sort of riding that line of navigating between what's truth and lies and I think this theme kind of has followed me in many ways. The road to um, for you to get Nancy to screen has been a, a long one. Was that, do you feel, due to the um, possible unlikability of her character? You know, she's a very ambiguous character and I could imagine somebody who's risk averse from a money side of thing being maybe a bit trepidatious about that? Was that an issue that you came across? Yeah, I think they won't always say that. They'll just pass. <laughs> and then you're just like, I wonder why. And in the US, people are really obsessed with casting. I think that the character was, yeah, messy and morally ambiguous and challenging. This maybe like a risky sort of bold investment. <laughs> which is maybe why we had all female financiers in the end. They all wanted to like come on board for the same reason, you know. And I remember when I was having trouble like getting the money, I was like, I wonder if I just made this movie with Matt Damon and the script was exactly the same, or somebody like that, 
you know, like, I wish I could have made that as an example just to see, like, how different it would be. And I think part of it is that men are more acceptable when they're, you know, and I don't really like to use the word unlikable, but, like, you know, when they're being morally questionable or duplicitous, I think it's perceived in a more positive way of like, oh my god, that's so fascinating, that's so fucked up, that's like really interesting, you know? And when women do it, I think it's like, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Riseborough is astounding in this and you know, can't well obviously you can't take her eyes off because she's in every single frame but rightly so um, she just draws you completely in how yeah. did she become involved with the project first attached and then she also produced as well so how did that develop which um, came first she was attached first like we met maybe four years ago my casting director at the time she sent me a list of people and I just watched you know Andrea's like filmography I was just blown away by the range of characters that she had played like Shadow Dancer like an IRA spy and then Oblivion she's like in this huge studio film and then Margaret Thatcher like her actual work just blew me away you know right away it was like she's Nancy like she's also just like I just thought the best actor she was right for it, but I also thought she was, like, an insanely good actor, you know? And so then I immediately kind of got obsessed with her and was like, okay, she's Nancy, and we hit it off. We had Skyped, had a Skype meeting and hit it off. And then the next few years was just trying to find financing, and at some point Andrea got involved as a producer and really sort of made these connections that were really valuable to the film actually you know happening you know she already had a relationship with Barb Brockley who is you know like the producer of James Bond yeah (laughs) which you know I remember thinking that's insane she's not gonna do it but she's a real champion of artists and loved Andrea as much as I did and wanted to support a female filmmaker so that was like a really defining moment. It really started to take off after that. Was that the nexus for you bringing on the rest? Because your cast is you know, astounding. <laughs> I remember yeah. seeing it in the program. Going, so like, you know, debut feature. It's like, you know, Steve Buscemi and Dan. You're like, what? I bribed them all with <laughs> bags of money. No, <laughs> um, they did not get that. But Ian Dowd was attached early on, actually. Andrea had a prior, you know, she had worked with John Leguizamo twice before and Steve Buscemi on Death of Stalin. And so some of those were her relationships. And she's also, I think, actors really want to work with her. You know, she's like actor's bait, I guess, like they say in industry, like really respect her as an actor I want to work with her and for me I don't like to sort of cast people in roles that they are known to do over and over again but yeah I mean I got the dream cast for my first film so now I'm totally spoiled it's like I could be happy just making movies with them over and over because they're just so fucking good hopefully I will be you know I, I'd love to make another film with any of them Given, one, budgetary concerns and also their crazy schedules, I know that you didn't get yeah. any rehearsal time. No. So how do you approach that when you're on set? Like, how did you prepare to make sure that you were all ready to hit the ground running? Because also, you know, 
it being a low budget uh, yeah. debut shot, you can't lose any time kind of on set. So yeah. How, yeah, how did you do that? Andrew and I had obviously we'd just been talking on and off about it for four years, so we were pretty much ready. <laughs> and then I don't know if other people do this, but I sent all the actors a biography or whole backstory of their character, and then you know we had some conversations before shooting, but really no rehearsal, which was a little scary, but. They're just so good. I think as long as everyone understands who their character is, then I think you have liberty to like play. You know, and I did a lot of improv with like Ann Dowd's character and John Leguizamo, just because I felt like their scenes could use some improv and like they were totally down. And so it was really fun to, to do that. But I always like to have that option. Eventually we'd come back to like the script anyway. I think because we talked about uh, their characters prior to shooting, it was fine. A glorious part of the film is the way that we see Nancy's world open up, not just metaphorically, we actually see that in the framing. Could you talk a little bit about that decision? Was that something that was always planned? Or did it occur to you, I don't know, maybe even as far as, as post? I thought it was actually going to be the whole thing in 4-3, and I was at that time having a love affair with 4-3 aspect ratio. You know, really felt like it was so perfect for like a singular character, it's like a portrait size, and if you're just going to show someone's face, it's like perfect size. And, and then I... We were scouting, and I was like, uh, once we got to, like, Ellen Leo's house, it just feels like I need more space. Like, I've got to switch somehow. And I think that also made people nervous. <laughs> it's just like, what? How are you going to make it? And I actually didn't have all the answers. I just knew that, like, I wanted it to go for 4-3 in the beginning, where she's, like, confined and trapped and make you feel that way, and then once she thinks she might be their daughter and goes off into this new world that it would open up. I just didn't know how it was going to happen, like a transition, until we were editing. And my editor, David Gutnick, who did a really amazing job, just we just experimented. And he like, it was that shot where it pans around the living room and then it starts to open up slow, but some people don't no, even you didn't, notice. No, well, I was watching it and I was like, sorry, just for three seconds ago. Like, yeah, when, yeah. when did that happen? Exactly. Yeah, and we, there was a version where it was like, it's 4-3, and then it cuts like to the next shot. She's in the car, and it's 16-9. And I was like, ah. And like, how it opens up in the pan. That felt right to me. And it was like experimenting, just like fucking around. Like, <laughs> what about this? What about, you know? And I have like great editor. Like, he edited my short film, my thesis film, and so we were... We were like open to just like messing around. But yeah, those are the kind of things that make people nervous. <laughs> They're like, hmm. You're currently working on a sci fi feature script and you've also got a. Oh, you did your homework. I'm like, yes. <laughs> and, and you also have got a series that you write in. Is there anything you can tell us about either of those projects at all? Um, yeah, I mean, the TV series is it's basically about the LA riots it's a love story between a Korean girl and a black guy living in Compton and obviously set during the early 90s and it's sort of like the wire meets Romeo and Juliet so there's that and then the sci-fi 
script is about a seed bank and climate change and sort of the future of food, I think, and how it's going to become this thing that we really should worry about. <laughs> I'm not really pitching it that well, but yeah, that's the general idea. So it's definitely not anything like dance. Nothing <laughs> no, is complete not going to be, yeah. I don't really like to do the same thing over and over, so... <laughs> Well, yeah. we'll look forward to that. Thank you so oh, much thank you. for talking to us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our filmmaker discussions and want to hear more, such as next week's interview with Sarah Colangelo, who directed Maggie Gyllenhaal in what has been heralded as a career best performance in The Kindergarten Teacher, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And for extra credit, leave us a quick review whilst you're there. Remember, directorsnotes.com is where you can read our daily interviews with directors of all stripes, as well as submit your own work if you'd like the opportunity to be featured here or on the site. Speak to you soon.